This is Trans Chat, a podcast where trans folk chat about ourselves, things important to us, and our communities. Hey folks, this week's two-part episode is about incredibly difficult topics, although it's also incredibly important to discuss these difficult topics. We have a much longer TW list than any episode previous, but for folks with the spoons to do so, I would encourage y'all to give a listen to this. We will be releasing edited and unedited versions of each episode because we believe it is important to provide an uncensored version of Survivor's words. Listeners may notice that there is speech responding to nonverbal communication. This is because we record our sessions while video chatting. The nonverbal communication in today's episodes included crying, head shaking, and lots of me flipping off the folks Lisa is describing. TWs for this episode series include physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, discussion of sex, gay and trans conversion therapies, meal restrictions, hospitalization, eating disorders, suicide attempts, victim blaming, religious justification for horrifying behavior, corrective rape, child molestation. The subject matters will be discussed in detail. This is the edited version. Hey everyone, my name is Caden. You can call me Cade. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and he, him, his. And I fall under the trans umbrella uh, my more specific identity is non-binary transmasculine or transmasculine non-binary, however you like to think of it. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but that is, that's who I am. I also identify with some other letters under the LGBTQ umbrella. Um, we can get into that later. So I guess, um, is there anything that you want to preface today's discussion with Lisa? Um, or provide any context for listeners coming in? Oi, uh, well, I should have prepared better. Um, no worries. I have questions um, that, okay. that um, if, if, I mean, if you want to just riff a little bit about some of your experiences, um, I can ask the questions as, as they, they arise or, you know, are, are conversationally relevant. Well, I will say to preface that I um, am not speaking on behalf of the organization Breaking Code Silence. I am speaking on my own behalf, though I will likely re reference that organization. Okay, yes. and we'll also drop um, that link again um, and any other links that you want in, in the show notes. Cool. And if... if um, any staff hear this and want to want to come at me um bring it on no no it's just that that in the last year or two you know i've i've had some uh some pretty big backlash me speaking out yeah and and that they say that they're very shocked you know that they had no idea that i felt this way or whatever and i'm like all right cool so just coming from my 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 work experience um of of the the hundreds and, and possibly like 2000 or more if i were to add it up 
interviews of, of folks perpetuating intimate partner violence and gender-based violence, um, almost all of them said that they were shocked that their partners felt this way. Yeah. And, and then uh, later... Uh, during the interviews, uh, almost all of them confirmed that they had engaged in the behavior that um, the survivors had described. They just didn't understand them in the terms that the survivors did. Um, and, and often this was put put politely um, an, an unlikely uh, framing for, for anybody engaging in those behaviors to, to really believe they'd done nothing wrong. Um, so, so I think it may, it may be fair to say that that might have some application Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But you asked if I wanted to preface anything. So I was like, just in the off chance that uh, any of them do hear this, or any other recordings or anything else that I've said publicly. Um, yeah, if you didn't want me to talk about your abusiveness publicly, you probably shouldn't abuse children. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the truth is only a punitive tool to, to those that do something wrong. But that's it. I mean, let's let's okay, go ahead. Yeah. And... Uh, do you want to, I mean, do you want to start with like the beginning, um, your experience being taken away? Is... No, we can talk about that. Um, so it's it's hard for me to discuss that with without going into the broader context of uh, the family that I grew up in, but because it's very common for the kind of kids who get sent to these facilities to come from very violent homes, the kind of homes where um, parents think that it's appropriate, you know, to kidnap their children, like are probably not, you know, the most emotionally healthy homes to begin with. Um, but I was exhibiting a lot of trauma-related symptoms. I had a, a dissociative identity disorder and um, because my my dad and stepmom were very abusive and, and uh, you know, physically, sexually, all that stuff. And it was suggested to my parents that they send me to one of these facilities. And so I wasn't escorted in the way that a lot of children are. I knew that I was going and it was recommended to them that they not tell me and they sent my brother at the same time they sent him to another facility and my brother was only 12 when they sent him away and they did escort my brother um but they didn't escort me escort that means kidnapping that's the euphemism that we use that they use <laughs> we um but i i remember you know when i got there that we drove up and it's it was in this converted bed and breakfast it still is it's still there and so it was a very nice building because it used to be a hotel in the suburbs of Salt Lake City. And so it wasn't like this, you know, where it wasn't like a, it didn't have bars. There was no wire, but there was just this energy, like this dark cloud that just hung over this building, you know, that as we drove up, I just felt this impending sense of doom. And like, I can't describe the fear that I felt when when we pulled up there. Like, I can still like just talking about it right now like I can still feel the fear that I felt pulling up to that building and um you know and they they took me inside and and they separated me from my mom and I don't know what they said to her um but this like 18 year old kid was doing my intake and she told me to strip and then she told me to um you know squat and cough and and all that and I now know that the reason that they do that isn't 
because of anything you might be sneaking in, it's actually like to start to indoctrinate you, you know, that forcing children to strip in front of adults, or in this case, barely legal teenagers themselves, um, is a form of indoctrination. And they asked me all these questions like about my sexual orientation and they were like, what's your sexual orientation? And, and at the time I wasn't, I wasn't really out the way that I am now. So I said, I'm gay. Like I was identifying as, um, as a lesbian. Now I do not identify as a lesbian back then. That's how I was identifying. And they were like, um, trying to remember the exact wording that they said when I said that I, that I was a lesbian, like, they were like, do you, do you want that to be a part of your treatment while you're here? I think that's what they said. And I said, no. And they said, well, we're going to address that later or something like that. Yeah. It was very, like, very shady the way that they, they dealt with that and and actually like when it was discussed like most of the staff members would have this very visceral visceral reaction like they would go like like people don't really do that anymore but back in like the 90s the 2000s you know if you saw like two guys kissing or two girls kissing people would have that reaction that they would go like ew and and that was how they reacted when i talked about like i had a i had a girl that i had been seeing um and when I talked about like having sex with her, that was their reaction. And then like they threw me into the general population and they said, um, you're only allowed to move five feet at a time. So you have to, you know, we will tell you when you can move and where. And that had never happened to me before. Like I had been in weird situations, you know, I had these super abusive parents. No one had ever told me you may not move without permission like you can move up to five feet which is like you know not very far it's like it's a belt loop essentially and if, like arm length. yeah it's like it's about arm length and if you violate five feet which you know if you like maybe you accidentally swung your arm or something then you'll get put on two foot and then you can only move two feet at a time with permission like that's it. I mean, I can look back on that and like that's insane. And and you know, like that lack of of freedom. And I wasn't allowed to speak. And um, I wasn't allowed. I was only allowed to use the bathroom like maybe four or five times a day. I developed um, interstitial cystitis, which means which is a bladder condition that now I have to urinate about sixty times a day as a result of that, of not being allowed to use the bathroom. And um, I had to leave the door open when going to the bathroom and count. And that included defecation. Sorry for being graphic, no, but that wasn't just urination. That was also defecation. And there were, so there were like six or seven other children. And then there were these adult staff members, including men who would sit there like watching while I went to the bathroom and also while I showered. Yeah, it's um, it's hard for me to talk about that. Well, if, do you want to do you want to move to something? I mean, I, I understand that a lot of today um, is going to be very difficult. So, if if we need to take a break um, at any point, or if even mid sentence you're like we need to change tracks, um, just let us know. 
uh, and we're, we're, we're happy to, if you're only to do, able to do like a five minute um, talking about uh, the troubled teen industry, um, and we, we do multiple recording sessions, you know, I, I want this to be something that um, is, 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 is as comfortable as is possible given the subject matter and these horrifying experiences that you've had. Thank you, Luna. Um, well, I mean, I, I get that we're, we're talking in the broader context, but I, I do want to focus as much as possible on the, the conversion, the conversion aspect of it, because this is trans chat. And because in the organization that I volunteer with, we generally focus on the industry as a whole. And I think that that conversion aspect really gets buried sometimes by some of the other stuff that happens. But I also want to explain, like, I want to give a general idea of, like, this is what the daily life was like. Because when these facilities get investigated, it's like, well, let's look if there was abuse. And they're generally defining abuse by, like, were people beaten, which, yes, they were. Were people molested, which, yes, they were. But it's like, I believe that the whole experience itself was abusive, that putting someone in an environment where you're only allowed to move five feet at a time and you're not allowed to speak is inherently traumatic and abusive. And so that's why I'm like, let's make sure people understand that this is this is the situation that I was thrown into. And that these were these were like 18, 19 year olds that were in charge of me, like they were and I was 17, you know, so it was like teenagers guarding other teenagers, basically. So these were not um, trained professionals in any capacity. They were just kids, essentially, who were hired off the streets and given total control over over us. May, may I ask if, if you think some of the phenomenon that was observed in like the, the prison experiments where, where folks with nominal power and maybe not the maturity or understanding to use it, were kind of let run rampant and, and so lots and lots of harm. So we talk about the Stanford prison experiment a lot in the activism that I do. And actually, I when I first came out of the fog about all this, like I read Zimbardo's book, which is called um, The Lucifer Effect, where he looks at the broader context. And sorry, my cat is like, really mad that I'm not paying attention to her and I I absolutely believe that that's what happened and and even when we try to talk about most of these experiences publicly like you'll see these comments like the New York Times did an article and there were all these comments that were like these kids must have done something to deserve being there and so that was the the attitude I think that staff members had was that like we were that they totally went into this place of we did something to deserve it or like, well, if they don't want consequences, they shouldn't violate the rules or whatever it was, you know, that like in the Stanford prison experiment, they forgot that these were just arbitrarily assigned students that they really started to think of the the prisoners as criminals who, you know, well, they knew what they signed up for or whatever. And that the guards became controlling and abusive and all this stuff. And I definitely think that that's what happened with these these staff members, you know, that once they were given power over people that they just became very justified and didn't feel bad about what they were doing. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's astounding what humans can do to each other. Once, once they feel that, um, their, their, their behavior was justified, then, then they're kind of stuck. 
in that cycle of, of doing behaving or, or uh, engaging well, in the same behavior and defending. Yeah. And then at that point then, and you know, this is something where like, I'm not, I don't want to compare my experience to like colonialism or racism, but um, there are some parallels, you know, that, that then because someone doesn't want to feel the guilt of having harmed another human being, then they need to continue to justify it by saying, well, they deserved it in some capacity, you know, and further dehumanize and, and then do worse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Would it be okay if I, if I ask about meal restrictions, was that something that, that was heavily part of, of the experience? Yeah, it was. And actually, um, I also have prediabetes and hypoglycemia as a result of that. I say I have this bladder condition. Oh, I also have this blood sugar condition. So on the surface, I was one of the reasons I was there was an eating disorder. And this is like what's so ironic. And I had been like in psych hospitals for um, like anorexia and bulimia. But like their philosophy was that food was used as um, as both a punishment and a reward for following the rules. And we had these very, very strict meal times and very strict meal portions. And we were told like, you have to sit here and you have to pick up this fork and now you can take a sip of orange juice and now you eat a bite of yogurt. Like that's how controlled our meals were. And I was always hungry, you know? And at some point they actually cut our rations because parents were complaining about weight gain. Well, yeah, it's, 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 um, like I said, the kind of parents who send their kids to facilities like this, you know, are the kind of ones who uh, probably want their kids to be thin, you know, but, but when they said on the surface, we treat eating disorders, we treat drug addiction, you know, it would make sense if you were actually treating those things for people to gain weight. But then when parents were complaining about weight gain, they, they cut our rations and they would use further meal restriction as punishment. So like there was one time that I forgot to take my Prilosec, it's, you know, proton pump inhibitor for acid reflux. It's not like, it's not like a psychiatric medication and they cut my rations in half for the day as a punishment. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Kaden, this is a lot to throw you in the middle of. I guess not having any, any real knowledge of what's going on. And obviously it's, you know, people like, um, and obviously this isn't, you know, trans related, but people like uh, Danielle Bergoli, who spoke out, not terribly detailed, but have spoken out about some, you know, trait, troubled troubled teen you know camps or ranches or whatever like my knowledge is pretty limited but just hearing these things like i feel like the only reaction you know one of the only reactions is to just shake your head and because you don't have any other you can't verbalize any other reaction to the horror the horrific things that you hear and so please don't apologize um Although if you feel you need to do, but you don't have to. Yeah, no, didn't mean to insert myself into this conversation that you and Luna have been having. Um, no, but thank you for part of. <laughs> no, I just sometimes I 
I worry about oversharing or like, I must say like trauma by proxy or something, you know, so no, I, I would rather that you had a strong reaction than uh, like I said, the people who comment on like New York Times articles saying, well, what did you do to get sent there? You know, often just Which, existing as a teen. Well, in my case, my, my crime was being molested by my dad and stepmom. So I feel like a, so many folks who make those kinds of comments don't think about the fact that no one deserves abuse and no one, no one deserves anything bad that happens to them. Especially in this sense, I, I can't speak for, you know, every single thing where if someone does something horrific, then, then I might, I, I might change my tune, but especially in regards to, you know, horrific experiences such as those that you're sharing with us, no one deserves that. No one deserves that. And so to ask something so thoughtless, to make those questions and to be so thoughtless and honestly, to be so careless, like, I would say that's, I don't know where I was going with this, but. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and, and yeah, folks... It probably says a lot more about them than anything else. Yeah. Is it okay? I, I, I don't wish to, to speak over. Uh, I, I just, I just wanted to, to mention if that is all right, that um, when I was hospitalized for one of the suicide attempts I admitted to, food control was one of, was one of the methods that they used to, uh, to enforce behavior or, or, or to punish uh, uh, behavior they were trying to discourage. And like as an adult? No, I was, I was a teen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I think there was, I think there was three meals that, that we went into and then how much you could eat and what you could eat was based on your behavior the previous day. And not everything that went into that, you know, were, were actually things that, that folks can control, which are things that you're describing as well. The, the, the punishments end up being very capricious because uh, th th there's no um, actual firm codified set of behaviors you're supposed to be engaging in it it's changing up as 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 you go and i i mean i remember one time i wasn't able to eat because i'd thrown up the previous meal which is just how my stomach is i you know i couldn't eat a lot of the food that was being served and so i would get further punished by that and i felt that was unjust what i'm hearing you describe you know is so much worse and um so so perhaps any listeners would have had similar experiences can extrapolate and realize, you know, just, just how much worse the troubled teen industry is in, in these behaviors. That's pretty horrific too, though. I mean, that's, especially if you're purporting to treat mental illness, yeah. you know, the yeah. idea that mental illness is a behavioral problem or a moral failing, it's, it's pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so we, we, we kind of discussed the, the moral fail, or you, you brought up moral failing. My, my understanding is that, is that a lot of religious rhetoric was, was used with your experiences. Is that, is that accurate or? Well, so officially, no, unofficially, yes. And I only found this out when I looked at like some of, I mean, like, can I say this because I know that like you're LDS and I don't want to like. Please do not censor anything whatsoever. 
ever regarding that because of my presence. Okay. There, there is very <laughs> things that folks have done that within my religious framework, they're going to be held accountable for. Okay. And oh, I, I, I'm not going to take any offense or, or, you know, I, 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 I would like to know because um, that goes into how I interact in LDS spaces and what I find acceptable and not acceptable. Um, I apologize. I kind of derailed that, but um, no, I don't, it's fine. I don't it's fine. want you to, to feel the need to censor anything at all. And if I'm ever probing again, kind of on those religious things, feel, feel free to tell me to shut up. Well, like years later, I found the website on the, you know, the, about what they call same sex attraction. And it, it was like word for word, line for line, exactly what I was told. And and they didn't say they were a religious program and they didn't even say that they did conversion therapy. They, I mean, they said that they, they didn't even say they did ABA. They said they treated autism, but like they totally did ABA, you know, and they totally did conversion therapy. But what they told me was like that, um, that I used being gay is like this thing to separate myself from everybody else and say that I was different. And so like, we weren't allowed to have any rainbows. We weren't allowed to, I wasn't even allowed to say the word gay because they said that I was trying to say that I was different than everybody else. And I found this whole thing on the website about like, you, we don't use that because it's like a label that you put on yourself. You say same sex attraction is something you have, not something you are which now I'm like, as a non-binary person, um, <laughs> attraction to men or women is going to be different than non-binary attraction. <laughs> you know, like, I don't yeah. even experience same-sex attraction as someone who's non-binary, but we just don't even go there, right? And that the reason that I thought that I had this was because of this sexual trauma that I had had, and that the way I was going to get over this was by experiencing the beautiful like powerful experience you have when you have an opposite sex sexual relationship which you it's know so in south africa up. is called corrective rape yeah it's called corrective intercourse it's it's and my my so-called therapist you know who the last time i spoke to her i don't speak to her anymore but the last time i spoke to her she was like i'm gonna start calling myself queer as a protest against trump and i yeah i was like wow i i don't even know what to do with that um but she was constantly pushing me and she would say like well you haven't really had sex yet because only penis and vagina counts as sex that like any other form of you know like digital or oral penetration doesn't count as sex and so you're still a virgin and once you start having sex with men like you'll get over this trauma of your dad molesting you even though i was also molested by my stepmom but we just didn't go there you, yeah was this so-called therapist someone uh during your experiences in this camp or someone outside who really frankly ought to be disband you know totally have you know any licensure or whatever removed because that's a bunch okay so thank you first of <laughs> all um i found out later she was practicing without a license to begin with she's now trying to get her license and i know because i'm filing a formal complaint against her um but she was my she was my therapist like 
that's not used. That was the word that was used. That's not what she was while I was there. But because I had such intense like Stockholm syndrome, I stayed in really close contact with her for a few years afterwards. And the whole time I was in contact with her, she was always just like, have you had sex with a man yet? Have you had sex with a man yet? And pushing, 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 pushing. Or she'd say like, do you have a crush on anyone in college? And I would say, well, there's this girl. And she was like, no, 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 I mean a guy, cause you're not. Or I would say, Rebecca, like, I'm not straight. And she was like, yes, you are. Like, yes, you are. Stop lying to yourself. Stop pretending to be something that you're not. Like, you're just afraid of men. You're just traumatized from your childhood and you need to get over it. And the only way you're gonna get over it is if you just have sex with men. And I unfortunately listened to her and I ended up in situations that were really squicky and uncomfortable and, you know, that really didn't uh, cure me, <laughs> even though there's nothing to cure. So it's like, I don't even wanna use that word. Yeah. Um, didn't change the way that I I feel about my attraction to both men and women and everybody in between. But yeah, that was the, that was the situation. I don't have any contact with her now, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a long protracted relationship. And I just, I really bonded to her. She used to, she used to give me these like cards every week that were like, you're the most amazing person I've ever met. You're like a daughter to me, which, I don't use female language to describe myself. And she also was like this, like you wanting to be a boy is like, you're trying too hard to be tough, to be hard. So she made me like get my hair done and get my nails done and like do all the super girly feminine stuff to try and like fix that aspect of me. But then she would in the next breath say like, you're the most amazing person I've ever met. And because I wasn't, getting that from my parents you know i just i latched onto it like it worked i bonded to her and felt like i couldn't say anything against her or like she must really have my best interests at heart if she loves me this much which now i know that it's actually illegal for therapists to tell you how much they love you and yeah it's extremely unethical and it's actually illegal to Cross those boundaries and I mean she used to like share graphic details about her sex life with me and like I mean she was super into this like you're a virgin unless you've had this really prescriptive definition of sex and so she would say like well we had anal or like digital sex but I'm still a virgin because I'm saving myself from marriage and all this stuff and um yeah now I'm like now I know that that's beyond I mean it's like she never touched me, but that is like a form of sexual abuse yeah. to like to share stuff like that with me and, and to pressure me in this way. To There was a term uh, that was highlighted in one of the thought reform Thursdays that described the phenomena that you're talking about. Oh, um, yeah. It's called love bombing. Is that? I, I, yeah, I think I think that might be the term that you that you'd used um, to, to describe that phenomena. Yeah, I, I, I want to be able to link some of the resources um, and, and have that, that, that jargon and those words for folks to be able to um, follow up and learn more because I'm, I'm hoping that ultimately at the end uh, of folks listening to you sharing these horrible experiences is, is they're not gonna just go on and, and, and continue with their life, that they'll do something. Um, so before we end um, the, the conversation, I definitely want, if, if you have suggestions 
for for what folks can do to hold others accountable or what legislation needs to have you know public voice saying this needs to happen um i, I would like us to be able to do that um if you're comfortable uh sharing like what listeners can do to to, to prevent others from from experiencing these horrifying things yeah, absolutely. I just I do want to comment on that, that love bombing is something that happens both in cults and in abusive relationships that like, you know, everyone will describe when they met the nurse, if, like, okay, we don't want to like stigmatize mental illness, but when they met their abuser that like, it felt too good to be true that they were like, oh, you're the love of my life. You're my soulmate. They said all these amazing things and built them up and built them up. And like, that's called love bombing. It's, it's creating a sense of intimacy that, that can't happen that quickly because intimacy builds over time. And the way that cults recruit people is that they shower them in compliments and love so that especially people who maybe haven't, are maybe like hungry for that kind of um, attention. attention, yeah, or validation or something because they didn't get it from their parents or for whatever reason they feel that way. Or maybe they're coming out of another abusive relationship, you know, that they'll, oh, no one's ever like said that to me before. No one's ever like made me feel this welcome or this loved. And so then as they start to slowly reveal their true selves, that the person will still feel bonded to who they were in the beginning, you know? Yeah, a lot, a lot of the things that you've described um, were also methods used um uh, as part of the satanic panic to deprogram folks. And, 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 I, and I imagine that there, there's industry overlap but, but between the troubled teen industry and a lot of, a lot of the, the cult deprogramming that, that ended up being worse than the cults or, 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 or similar. The only difference being is, is, is that process was hetero or, or that process uh, was, was uh, Christian-based versus um, other philosophies or, or metaphysics sort of thing. Yeah, I, I don't know much about that. That's interesting. Uh, as, 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 as a researcher in, in, into ABA and looking for what will help my kids and what to stay away from, I, I discovered quite a lot of, of things with, with some similar methodology. I think we discussed how ABA is, is, is pretty much just yeah. packaging. It's conversion therapy. For, for neurodivergence. Yeah. And there was actually, there was a gal there who now has a TED talk about her experience there. Her name is Alex Generous, and that's why I feel comfortable sharing her name because she gave a TED talk about her time at La Europa where she got really like psychotic. I mean, she had, she was autistic and I'm, uh, you know, I really don't like to use terms like high functioning, low functioning, you know, or the other word that we don't use anymore because it came from a Nazi, but that's what she was labeled with at the time. And the way that she was treated is that she was heavily medicated and that she was, yeah, subject to all this behavior modification is that she became so like psychotic that she was hallucinating and, and all this stuff. And she basically like almost died. And then she got taken to some other facility where she actually was treated like a human being. You know, so if you if you look her up, you can find her TED talk. Her name is Alex Generous. Okay, and and, and I, if you think it's appropriate, we can also include that in, in the show notes so folks can go. Oh yeah, let's do that. That's to, better. To... Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I'm I'm holistic, but like I really feel like it's it's a very similar struggle that like 
queer trans conversion therapy and ABA, it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's this like trying to change something through punishment that A, can't be changed and B, doesn't need to be changed because there's nothing wrong with it. And it's actually the stigma that causes problems in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've got several questions. Is there anything that you wanted to, to just, uh, riff on or share uh, i i'm using riff and in the context of what we're talking about might not be the most appropriate word but it's the one i have at the moment is there anything you want to expand on um that we've discussed up to this point before i maybe ask a couple of questions if that's okay no go ahead and, and ask me your questions i mean i guess i i, I guess now maybe an appropriate uh time to ask if, if you could say one or, or two things to to fellow survivors what might that be Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very active in the survivor community. And so, so like my friend group is, um, largely other survivors, Okay. but I think sometimes we can really become an echo chamber. And I okay. forget that there are a lot of people who haven't found us yet and also don't realize what was done to them was wrong. And for a long time, I was one of those people. And I, I defended that facility. I defended the people who worked there. I had really gnarly, gnarly trauma bonding. Like now I can call it that, but I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. And I also know that they had these methods that induce um, euphoria, like love bombing induces euphoria. And that's, that's why you know, people stay in cults. That's why people join cults is because they get feelings of euphoria and, you know, who doesn't like euphoria? So I guess what I would say is like for the people who maybe don't even consider themselves survivors or the people who haven't found us yet, you know, like, I don't care. I don't care what you did, who, you know, what mental illness you had or didn't have, like you did not deserve what happened to you. Like no human being, period, deserves to be treated that way, and especially no child. And it's more than likely if you had any symptoms your parents felt needed to be fixed, that your parents were more to blame than you were, and that you were probably acting out, you know, any kind of family dysfunction that may have actually made you the most emotionally healthy person in your family because you were actually expressing it instead of trying to pretend it wasn't there. And that it can feel really, really hopeless when this first happens, when you first realize how bad it really was, you know, like in the, in the matrix, when Neo comes out and the colors are drained and everything's gray, you know, it, it feels really like your worst, your life gets worse before it gets better. But um, we do have this really, really amazing community and we have these resources, you know, and there is there is hope for healing and that I think you're great, you know, just you're fantastic the way that you are, whether that's LGBT, you know, what or or autistic or bipolar addict, like I don't I don't give a crap, you know, like you're fantastic the way that you are and there's nothing wrong with you. And it was, it was their shame, not yours. 
what happened, you know? Yeah. You have, you have mentioned some of your activism here and in previous episodes. Are you comfortable sharing what some of that looks like? Is this, is this lobbying um, politicians for legislation? Is this, um, you know, reaching out and finding other survivors and, and providing a voice to them? Um, what does that kind of look like? Well, it's looked like a lot of things over the years. Um, Breaking Code Silence is a multi-branch organization, and it does have a legislative branch and it has advocacy branch. And um, and I'm more involved in the investigative research branch. So, like, the main thing I'm trying to do right now is to just is to do research and writing content creation because people don't have the language to describe what happened to them or like i said they don't realize what happened to them was wrong or they don't know how it was wrong and so i try to empower survivors by writing these articles about what happened to us and i also host a monthly zoom meeting for survivors which um is on the breaking code silence website okay it's like we, i guess we can link to that too Yes. And then I've yeah. been, you know, a moderator, administrator in a couple of different survivor groups for the last several years. And I, because I've gotten a lot of visibility, especially since the Paris Hilton documentary aired in September of 2020, I wake up every morning and I have a lot of messages in my inbox from survivors, sometimes from people I've, like from complete strangers who sort of, um, who will who will tell me their stories like a lot of the times things that they've never said to anyone before they're like hey i saw you said such and such about this and i've never told anyone this but that also happened to me and i try as best as i can to respond to those messages i don't always have the energy to respond to all of them but i i try to just to let people know that they're not alone and so like in terms of of activism you know i'm 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 a full-blown abolitionist, but some people try to take a more gentle, nuanced approach. They try to look at reform and like, that's more what's happening right now that there was this bill passed in Utah that we were involved with that would at least make physical restraint and chemical restraint, which is, you know, injecting people with sedatives illegal. And then one in Missouri just two days ago that would remove the religious exemption clause that says that these places don't have to be regulated if they're religious. So, you know, there's that, but I'm kind of like, and that's great, you know, a hundred percent, that's great. But I'm like, as long as these places are still open, I think there's still more work to be done. Yeah. I yeah. want to shut them down altogether. That's why that part is just me. That is not on behalf of BCS. That is on behalf of myself. So my goal is to get the places shut down, but until that's possible, you know, I'm just trying to raise awareness and empower survivors through knowledge and through community. Yeah. Caden, yeah. yeah. do you have any Kayden, questions before I, I, I proceed with I, um, you're definitely a lot more prepared than I was. I, I'm just, right now I'm just here. And I'm really appreciative that you're taking the time to share your experiences, your knowledge, your research with us, um, and your advocacy with us and with our listeners, because this is something that needs to be 
that needs to be heard. I think too often folks aren't heard or were not specifically listening. All I have to say right now is just thank you for sharing everything that you've shared with us because um, I know it's hard to discuss. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any questions at this point. Some comments I wanted to say and some things, especially for anyone questioning, and you've already, you've already covered it in that, you know, that's how folks can get caught up in joining a cult or something like that is part of it is love bombing. But for anyone, for anyone still out there questioning of how could you get fooled into this? Well, it's not even necessarily getting fooled. I think a lot of folks, and I, I, again, knowledge not there based on what you have elaborated is, you know, for anyone questioning things, a lot of folks end up joining cults because there's, if I understand it correctly, folks might join cults because they're in a position of vulnerability and the recruiters for cults see that and take advantage of that. And they do it with, I hate to say, or I hate to use a term, but I feel like it's most appropriate. They take advantage of those vulnerabilities with clinical precision. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that at that point of the discussion, I just wanted to make a note, you know, that no one, some folks maybe get fooled, but I would say the vast majority of folks who end up joining cults have done so with some combination of vulnerabilities that got taken advantage of. And not necessarily like, oh, hey, this is the most amazing thing ever. I'm spinning myself in circles, but the whole point is that like mm-hmm. folks get taken advantage of. That's like, I would say the vast majority, as as I understand it, the vast majority of folks get taken advantage of in terms of joining cults. Am, am I? I? I think that's fair from, from what I've looked at uh, related to like the satanic panic and how people understood joining cults or how people have approached identifying cults um, is, is this is often, you know, they're on their most, at their most vulnerable part in their life, somebody throws them a lifeline who's looking for people at the most vulnerable part of their lives for, for either financial gain or, uh, or power or, um, you know other motivations and yeah it's 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 scientific in these techniques have been honed and used and updated not just for decades for centuries like these things are documented well and i think it's important to realize like with specifically with the troubled teen industry you know that we were you know we were literally in a place where we couldn't leave and that becoming pro-program, you know, this trauma bonding, the Stockholm syndrome, like is a trauma response, you know, that it was what our brains had to do to survive. That it was like, you agree with what we're saying or you never go home to see your family again. That eventually, like it, I don't care how mentally strong you think you are, like at some point, like you will just agree with them you know you like that's how interrogation that's how torture yeah. works is that at some point you will just give them what they want you know and and that like it was it was very painful and required some really um very brain-based trauma therapy like emdr like traditional talk therapy didn't work for me to to even start to like 
access some of that those walls I built in my brain you know like I went in with a dissociative disorder you know I came out with a whole other dissociative disorder so thank you yeah I just wanted to make a quick note for any listeners that to not judge and just try and give your sympathy and empathy as as best you can because this is one this isn't easy to talk about so again thank you for sharing um and two you know this is a lot of folks come out of this very traumatized you know both out of troubled teen industry stuff and kind of cult stuff not conflating the two although sometimes it feels there are similarities um but just give your sympathy and because you don't you don't know what anyone else goes through so give your sympathy empathy if you can and just don't the whole the whole point and the whole reason i brought it up was just just don't judge folks and be gentle with those around you because you have no idea what kind of experiences folks have had well and i would add to that like you might think that you would never crack under torture but you would like there no go ahead and then i have a thought related to that oh just that there have been so many studies that have been done that show like your brain eventually like it's a chemical process your brain will break under torture yeah um i I was gonna say i folded in two days with with the the mental health hospitalization i did not agree with how they were doing stuff and i resisted and by the end the end of the third day i i was in lockstep with everything that happened so i and, and that was for something that was not torturous and did not engage in in mm-hmm. such horrible or in as horrible as, as you've described situations. Um, and that, that's something that was a big eye opener for me as, as I've reflected on that. You know, um, I, I, I pride myself in some ways of being like an iconoclast or, or challenging uh, the LDS culture that and, 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 and components yeah, that I grew up too. in, but it was it was quick. And um, I did not agree with how other people were treated. And I stopped voicing that after a couple of days. Um, and, and this idea of you, you got to get with the program if you're getting out. Um, and uh, it, it was very quick. After one night in isolation and vomiting that whole night, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't push back anymore. So I can't imagine you know, how, how, how those odds were, were stacked against y'all. Thank you. Part two will be released later this evening, and we encourage you to listen to both episodes. Thanks for listening to Trans Chat. Take care of yourselves.